You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now, as is our custom, to open the Bible with me. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew in the 19th chapter. So if you don't have a smartphone or a device uh, to get access to that, you'll, you'll see there's a, a paperback Bible in the chair, uh, the tray of the chair in front of you. you. Make that our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. Don't be afraid of the table of contents if this is one of the first times you've opened a Bible. We believe that there is treasure uh, that Jesus teaches us uh, available for us, whether this is the first or the 10,000th time you open a Bible. We believe that something powerful happens, that when we open the Bible, by the power of God's very Spirit, the Bible begins to open us. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, a couple of years ago, we began our trek through the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel literally just means good news. Christians believe we have good news. And so the New Testament starts with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all tell an eyewitness account of the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we find ourselves in chapter 19 in the last 10 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, as, we, as we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew, he's told us about Jesus, the good news of Jesus, by telling us about his miraculous birth, about his anointing in the Holy Spirit, but also even in his teachings. In fact, there have been these noteworthy teachings. The most famous is known as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But after each of these famous discourses, there's something that you'll see in the very first verse of chapter 19. It says, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, now that phrase shows up five times because the way that Matthew likes to organize his thoughts is that he tells the story of Jesus in light of these five major discourses. So we're on the heels of this, and then he begins to teach his disciples for the next couple of chapters and there's two things I want you to know. One is that he is on the way to Jerusalem. Almost every sermon uh, in the Gospel of Matthew from here on out is going to end something like, and then, then Jesus went to the cross, died, and was resurrected. Like that, that's, that's how every, in, in light of what's happening, he's, he's set his sights on Jerusalem and he's making his way there. The second thing is that we begin to let Jesus teach us about certain things. And so wouldn't you know it, it's our first sermon back in the series of Matthew, and the topic of this sermon is divorce. Yay! And I'd be like, man, I invited my friend here, and they're like, do you always talk about this? Well, I'll say that our goal is to talk about all the things that Jesus talks about, uh, and to talk about these things in the way that Jesus talks about them. So uh, our invitation, I think, is to begin to listen to what Jesus has to say on the topic of, we'll see, gender, sexuality, marriage, singleness, and divorce. And while those are hot topics, the goal isn't that I, you get a hot take from me. In fact, Jesus says enough controversial things here by himself. He doesn't need my help. I'm trying to get out of the way. But that being said, I'll give you a disclaimer. There is no way that I could possibly speak to every single experience of divorce in this room. There's just no way. On the spectrum of our own experience of marriage and divorce, of gender, sexuality, and singleness, there's no way I could speak to everyone. So I hope you, you'll know, I, I won't be able to speak specifically to every single instance. But my goal is that we let Jesus speak, and I think he does. My goal, as a, hopefully as, a, as a, a helpful pastor, isn't to teach you what to think necessarily, but to teach you how to think. And where I get that is here in Jesus. See if you can spot it as we read through. We're going to read the first 15 verses where Jesus talks about gender, sexuality, 
singleness, marriage, divorce, and even children. Topics that, whether or not we want to talk about them, everyone already is. And so we begin to invite Jesus to speak into them. So, now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he went away. As I said before, these are topics that everyone is already talking about. These are topics that everyone is already discussing We are at a society obsessed with and yet confused about identity. And one of the most common sources of identity, I think you'll find, are listed. Gender, sexuality, marriage, singleness, and divorce. Titles that actually begin to give us a sense of identity. And Jesus talks about them, and so we do too. But notice, the context of this is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. So in this sense, this is always true, that he is speaking authoritatively, powerfully, instructively, you might even say controversially, and at the same time, going to Jerusalem to die for undeserving sinners and to be resurrected victorious for them. And both are true, that he is giving instruction and guidance about something, and yet also working as a means of grace, the means of grace for these people. So notice a few things as we begin to answer three different questions. Here here are the three questions I think we're going to try to answer. One, why are gender, sexuality, marriage, divorce, and singleness such hot topics? Why are they such hot topics? Second question, 
why, as we read in this text, why is divorce so bad? And then lastly, why are Christians to be the ones, the only ones, not freaking out about it? So why? Why is it that gender, sexuality, marriage, divorce, and singleness are such controversial and hot topics? Even so, in this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees. Two, why is divorce so bad? But why are we as Christians the only ones not really freaking out about it? Well, it starts like this. Here's one of the assumptions the text begins to make and contend to us. You will come with your own preconceived ideas about men, women, marriage, and singleness and want to force Jesus to tell you what you want to hear. Look at the context. That's exactly what happens in verse 3. The Pharisees came to him and to test him, right? To trap him, to scandalize him. And just join me, if you will, along with the Pharisees and, that, and admit you and I will want Jesus to tell things to us that we already believe. You will want him to tell you what you want to hear. There's a few problems with that. One, you don't get crucified. You don't get nailed to a cross publicly for telling people things that they want to hear. But two, the invitation for us is to see that Jesus has help for us. You will want Jesus to tell you what you want to hear. Now, that would work. If you are the Lord and Redeemer of the universe and Jesus is not, then that works. He should, after all, tell you what you want to hear. If you're the creator, redeemer, and sustainer of the universe, you're right. Jesus should bow to you. But I want to invite you to consider the possibility that the opposite is true. That there's a powerful, eternal, redemptive power in Jesus that we're invited to see here. And notice, they want to scandalize him. They want to catch him. They don't really want to learn from him. They don't want to be taught by them. Uh, now, I'll say this regularly as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, but I want to warn you, every time you see the Pharisees show up in any of the Gospels, it's a trap. It is a trap. They are spoken of by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a foil. And so you find yourself going, like, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go, like, you find yourself going, like, man, these man, these Pharisees are really, really jerks, or they're really self-righteous. Because after all, they believed that their own righteousness and goodness was based on their own performance by somehow impressing or obeying God to the point that that gave them merit. And so you read these stories about the Pharisees, and you find yourself going like, what a bunch of punks. I sure am glad we're not like them. At which point, you are a Pharisee. And so I want to warn you, the Pharisees are a trap. Every time they show up in the text, they serve as kind of like a trap. You're like, your mental walk and you're like, oh yeah. And as you step into it, immediately you go, oh shoot, that's, that's the point. And so they come, as I say here, wanting Jesus to simply step into the scandal, to simply affirm or cause up controversy. They want him to say what they already want to hear. Now, geographically, that's significant because he's in the exact region where John the Baptist spoke out against the, the corrupt Herodian dynasty about an illicit marriage relationship that got him beheaded. And so there's many different motives here that they're trying to trap him in, right? They're, they're, he's surrounded by people who would have, at this sense, really followed John the Baptist. Now, don't, wait, don't worry, we'll come back to this later. They, they challenge him on his authority a few chapters later, later, and he refers back to John the Baptist. But they're also doing this because, wouldn't you know it, the prevailing schools of thought around divorce had contradicting liberal and conservative points of view. Shocker. There were far right and far left views 
of marriage and divorce. And they're inviting Jesus into the controversy. And instead of responding to the controversy, he responds with a question about the nature of God and how and why God has created things to exist. What a powerful, and that might be it. That might be the most important thing you see. He's like, invited into the controversy, and yet he's like, no, I'm going to talk to you about who God is and how God created this to work. What a powerful uh, invitation for, for Christians even now, right? Isn't that the case? Most people, they, they want you to, they want a hot take. They don't want to listen to you. They want to use you. Use you as like, okay, now you're on my team. And in a very fear-stricken and, and I, I would say a, a fragmented kind of time in society, like this makes sense. But what a powerful influence Jesus has over, I think, our thinking on this. Because after all, people are like, well, what do you think about what do you think about Joe Biden? Or what do you think about Donald Trump? And wouldn't it be powerful to say, I won't answer your question until you answer mine. Who is God? What's God's plan and design for leadership, for character, for governance, for human flourishing? Because if you'll answer that question, maybe I'll answer yours. You get the idea? Hot topics serve as an easy excuse for controversy, and we're obsessed with that kind of outrage. And yet Jesus offers a way through, doesn't he? Like, well, what's your take on, in this case, divorce? But it could be anything. What's your take on, what's your take on race or abortion? Or what's your, right, you get the idea? Like, what's, what's your take on these things? And what if Christians, like Jesus, follow in his footsteps and say, hey, I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine. What's God's design for humanity? What's God's plan for people? What's God's purpose? What's his redemptive work that's visible in these things? Because if you'll enter into my discussion and answer my question, I'd be happy to answer yours. And so Jesus does that. They come with a controversy. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And there were two different schools of thought at this particular time. They're inviting him into this controversy, uh, the, known as the, the rabbinic tradition of Hillel and the rabbinic tradition of Shammai. You can look these up. They existed in the centuries around Jesus' teaching. And, and these are kind of two, again, shocker, like liberal and conservative views on marriage and divorce. One was like, we need more laws around marriage. We, mean, we need more enforcement of these laws. You can only get uh, married and divorced under these very strict circumstances. And the other perspective was like, man, you can divorce anybody for any reason. Uh, you can get married for any, any reason. Like, there's no reason to this. This should be something everyone has access to. You, should, you, hear, you, hear, the, you hear the kind of the prevailing thoughts? I joked with my wife because I'm a stupid man. Uh, but one of, the, one of the schools of thought, it, 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 they, I mean, I, I it's not funny, uh, but I, I'm a stupid man. And so it was like, yeah, there was, there's, uh, he, he like, he's known as saying that, like, hey, you could divorce your wife if she, uh, if she, like, sp spills breadcrumbs or burns your food, as a joke. And she, because she's savage, goes like, yeah, good for her, because after all, wh what woman would want to get stuck with a man who throws a temper tantrum over food? You get the idea. And they're inviting him into the controversy. Where do you stand on this, Jesus? Where do you stand on this? What, what school of thought do you find yourself in? And he responds, have you, verse 4, not read? Now that's powerful. The whole purpose of the Pharisees is to read and understand and apply and teach God's law. So all they did is read, and Jesus not so subtly makes a knock, right? Like, 
Don't you read? Like, have you not read? And he appeals to the authority of the scripture. Now, for you in this room, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't think of this Bible as authoritative, but think of Jesus asking, appealing to your authority. Cite your sources. Don't you, where do you, don't you know? Who taught you that? That's the kind of question I hope I'll be asking throughout. But he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I want to give you a picture of marriage, sexuality, singleness, and even as you see your gender, that might not be what you think. My goal isn't to tell you all the circumstances that are are good or bad around these things, but I want to give you an insight that I think Jesus wants us to see. Remember that question, why are gender and sexuality, why is marriage, divorce, and singleness such a hot topic? Why are, they, why are they so powerful in our lives? Why do we have so many preconceived ideas about that? Why is that the case? And Jesus corrects two groups of people. First, he corrects the, uh, right, the, the Pharisees who want to pin him in, into, into a position that, that he wants to avoid. And second, as he appeals to the apostles, they said, well, fine, if this is the case, right, this is, this is, your, this is your good uh, commitment averse millennial friend, well, fine, we just shouldn't get married, right? And you're like, oh, this is not a new thing. And he wants to correct them on their in, incorrect view of marriage as well. And Jesus' question to their controversy is to ask them, what's the purpose? Where does this come from? I want to say to you, the reason this is such a big deal, the distinctly Christian conviction as an answer is this, God invented gender and marriage. It was God's idea. It was God's invention. And that's particularly powerful for us. Uh, That's particularly insightful for us uh, because we usually try to evaluate a thing and we usually try to understand it without beginning to ask about its purpose. And my question for you today, isn't what when it comes to gender, sexuality, marriage, singleness, and divorce. My question that I want to press into you is why? Why are they? Why do they exist? Why are they even topics? Where did they come from? And Jesus says they came from God the Father, the Creator. You see, God has revealed Himself in this. This I want you to see. God reveals Himself in union across difference. This is God's purpose. This is his character. If you read through the first chapters of Genesis that Jesus is citing here, you begin to see this more clearly. God reveals himself in union across difference. He speaks these benedictions over each day of creation. God made this, it was good. God made this, it was good. God made this, it was good. And then what happens is the first malediction in the Bible, literally the first bad word, he speaks a bad word, and he says, it is not good. It is not good. Genesis 1.27 says that God created man, and one, man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So just get this. This, is, this. this might be the most controversial thing. Not just him and not just her. There is something of God's very character that's invisible until you see the union of those two different things across difference. It's invisible until you see a man and a woman together. One of the ways you know this is that you can't get away from it. You can't get away from inherent maleness, femaleness, and marriage. Here's what I mean. There is no pagan 
backwoods society that we have ever, that has ever existed the way we've discovered where marriage is not present. It doesn't matter how backward and undeveloped this society is. Every society begins to create marriage. Why? Because they didn't invent it. God did. And there is no society so progressive, right, so advanced, so far along in their development that they can get rid of marriage. You can't eradicate it. You can't stamp it out. It's built into everything. And that's because that's how God intended God's very character is on display in the union of things across difference. That's what he does. He creates things. And marriage is God's plan to reveal himself to his people. He introduces himself to the world. Did you hear that? By first creating a man, but then says, it's not good, chapter 2, verse 18, that this man is alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And what I want to convince you of is that when God brings union across difference, it's the source of beauty. It's beautiful. It's amazing. In fact, the first example of any work of art comes from this. When the man and woman first meet, the first sonnet, the first poem, the, po- right, the first song, the first verse has, it was written in this moment. And so I, I tell men, if I'm walking through like uh, premarital counseling, like, hey, write poems for your girl, right? Like, write poetry, uh, Song of Solomon is, is a really great book for you, just for you. Uh, help, yeah, you just, I tell my wife regularly, babe, you're like, your hair is like a flock of goats coming down Mount Hermon. <laughs> she gets it. The first sonnet, the first poem was a love song. And almost every, every, every other work of art is built around this, the union of different things, every single one. I remember I always hear people railing against, like, why are some of these songs so explicit or sappy or this, right? And I'm like, because this is how God intended it for, to, for it to work. And so he says, bone of my bone, Adam says to Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, alas, right? This one, these other ones I'm not like, but this one's like me. This one is perfectly complementary to me. And women can say, according to Genesis 2, that women are God's gift to men. You can say that and quote the Bible, right? I'm God's gift to you, and you have to go, yes, thank God. Bone of my bone. You get the idea? It's beauty in that God brings that which is disconnected, that which is incomplete, and it is good character to reveal himself as one who makes things are, that, are, that are not whole and puts them together. This is what our God does. But it's not just there. It's actually part of all of creation. I'll give you three different examples. Vertical, horizontal, and then temporal or chronological. Because the story of creation isn't just that. Even though the man and woman, this picture of the invention of marriage as a revelation of God's character bringing different things together, it it culminates and climaxes at the man and the woman, but it's already baked into the DNA of everything else. For example, that kind of like, there's dogs and cats that are male and female, right? You have bulls and cows. You have roosters and hens, right? Like, you get, like it's everywhere. Even plants have a, a maleness and femaleness to them. And so maybe you're in this room and you're not a Christian and you're wondering, why are Christians so up in arms about this? And the reason is this, because we believe that God reveals himself in union across difference. And we will typically want to pick one to the detriment of the other. We will typically try to do away with difference for the sake of union because we're obsessed with sameness. Or we'll do away with union because of difference and we'll use that to oppress or overpower. You get the idea? So first, the vertical. 
unity across, union across difference. It says that at the begin, in the beginning, God what? God created the heavens and the earth. There's a formlessness, a chaos, until creation begins to, out of nothing, put these pieces together, where now there's land and sky. Well, friend, God delights, and it does beautiful work in bringing union across difference. Here's what I mean by this. There is something inherently powerful, even spiritual, in mountains. Because there's this place, when we see a mountain, where the sky and the earth, the heaven and the earth, it's as if they meet. In fact, the Old Testament is full of worship that, that, was taken, that took place in the idol worshipers on mountains. Why? Because there's something powerful about it. That's where you want a vacation. You want a vacation in the mountain. And, and the place where the supernatural union of differences between heaven and earth comes. There's something powerful, restful, peaceful, awe-inspiring in those things. But here's the horizontal. It said he also separated the land from the water. Every great population center grows along the meeting of land and water. Every single one. You can try, right? Like you, you try, to, you try to, to build a large city where there's no water uh, and land and water don't work uh, together, but, but it, it doesn't work. It, not, not long term. Why? Because there's something powerful in the union of these different things. There's something amazing. Like, same thing. You go to the beach to rest. There's something supernatural and powerful in it. It is, it is the very character of God on display that he loves to take different things and bring them together in a way that inspires beauty, right? Our city is named after one of these. You can go, uh, today I encourage you, go down, uh, go down before it freezes, right, to, to, the, to the quarry and the, and the water feature that our city is named after, a waterfall. Cities build up on rivers, they build up on lakes, they build up on oceans. You get the idea. Different things brought together. And what's the third thing that Jesus, got ahead of myself, not yet. What's the third thing that God brings together in, in creation? It's temporal and chronological. He separated what? Day from night. Two distinct and separate parts of our own existence. And yet, here's what you know to be true. When those two different things unite, it's mesmerizing. It's spellbinding. There's nothing more beautiful and more colorful than a sunset or a sunrise. There's something amazing. These two different things come together, and it's beautiful. Friend, I want you to see that the God of the universe reveals himself as one who unites, brings union across difference. That's part of his plan for the world. That's how he reveals himself to the world. And so when we think about gender, sexuality, marriage, divorce, and singleness, don't ask the what Ask why. Why do these differences exist? Is there a purpose? Is there some meaning behind this? Is there something greater or bigger? And I want to invite you into the possibility that the very character of God is on display in them. And so we regularly ask the what before we ask the why. Well, the first question, I think we've covered at least a little bit. I can't cover all of it, but God reveals himself in union across difference. That's why these topics are so hot. But the second question is, why is divorce so bad? Why does Jesus speak of it so starkly here? And it's this, that ultimately, if God reveals himself in union across difference, then sin distorts the story of union across difference. Sin takes that which is good and life-giving and makes it destructive. 
it turns it into something that it was not meant to be. And so in this particular case, as you read through this story of creation in Genesis 3, sin enters in. And in that place that was meant to be a container of grace, namely this man and this woman coming together as different but yet united in one flesh, the first place that God reveals his grace is the first place that sin comes and destroys. And it explains the kind of animosity and division that goes between men and women until Jesus comes back. And that story of how this distorts God's ability to bring union across difference applies here to, in this case, divorce. Why is divorce so bad? Because if sin distorts that union, in this case, divorce distorts the story of union across difference. It tells a different story. Divorce points to something else. Instead of pointing to a life-giving, redemptive power of God to take what is separate and broken and make it whole, it does something different. And you destroy the union. You find it here. You can also destroy the difference. Try to eradicate it. But either way, notice that this difference is God-created and it points to something that He alone can do. And so when it's broken, it distorts the story of union across difference. Uh, I'm, would you grab me that box right there? I meant to leave it up here and all right, I want to offer to you exhibit A and exhibit B. Often we think, even marriage, divorce, gender, sexuality, we often think the what, and we don't ask the why. And I would argue that you can't argue the what until you know the why. After all, you can't evaluate if a thing is good or bad until you know what it's for. I know that's not grammatically correct. You can't in a sentence with a preposition, but it's for emphasis, right? Exhibit A, a hammer. Now, before you can answer whether or not this is a good hammer, before you can answer whether or not this is a useful hammer, you have to start by asking, what's it for? And begin to think back to whoever invented this, right? The first person who, who discovered, right? D discovered. <laughs> oh, look, that's not how that works. That's dumb. Think about the inventor, the designer of this hammer. And think about what would be most glorious to him. Think about what would bring that creator and designer the most joy. And if you can, anthropomorphically, right? Think of what would make this hammer the most joyful. What would make this hammer feel good about him or herself, right? What would make this hammer delight in its existence? How would it know that it has meaning, purpose, and value? Do you get the idea? You don't know if it's any good until you know what it's for. Exhibit A, the hammer. Exhibit B, right here, this little apple right here. Now, if you're not an apple, if you haven't drank the Kool-Aid and joined the cult, this, actually, this, this, uh, this particular illustration will be even more meaningful to you. This little apple, they put them on the, even the back of a laptop, so if you're in a public space, you can open it up and show everybody, right? And it's amazing, and, and, and this, is, this is beautiful. Like this there's a, there, there's a secret to the sauce in this, this cult, and it's written or engraved on every single one of their devices or as close to them as possible, and it's right down here in the small print, and some of you cult followers like I know this. It says, designed by Apple in California. There's a lot going on there, right? There's a lot being said, right? Designed by Apple. Now, I think on one hand, they're doing this because they know that it was assembled not in America. And so they're just like, but it's still, it's like, it's sort of American. Um, but it's 
But it's, it's a, this is a, this is a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar genius designed by Apple in California. I mean, you think about it, like, ooh, it's in Cal- ooh, it's Cupertino. Cupertino's on everything, right? They built, it, it's, ooh, this is designed in Apple. This is designed, design, designed by Apple in California, right? Like, ooh, this is, this, right? You're, you're meant to have that feel about it, which is why I know some of you hate it now. You're like, forget it. I'm going to destroy all my Apple devices, right? And how ironic, how ironic uh, that probably a corporation that would be the most upset by Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 19 was founded on the principle of beautiful design. How ironic that uh, an organization that is their moneymaker, they have staked their fortune on beautiful design, doesn't know where they got that idea. And Jesus says this beautiful design is something that's a part of God's nature. Now, imagine... I took this beautifully designed product, and now imagine I went around the building and looked for all of the nails that maybe have come loose in some of the sheetrock and the drywall or nails around here that have come loose. And imagine I started to try to hammer them in with this device. Imagine I was trying to fix all of the nails, like hammer in all the nails. I tried to go around and do this. Notice something that would happen. It would destroy the device, and I might find myself going like, this, is no, this apple is no good. What a piece of junk. This apple is worthless, right? But I wouldn't be able to say that because I don't know what it's for. And so notice, sin distorts the story of union across difference. And when you don't know what a thing is for, you begin to use it for something different and it causes harm. Friend, why is divorce such a big deal? Is it just a bunch of raving fundamentalists, right? Is that what's going on? Or is it possible that the place where God intended the most joy and literally life can also simultaneously become a place and source of pain and death? And so, friend, I know many many of you in this room have suffered the consequences or have been close enough to divorce that you can speak to this more than I can. And in a place that was meant to be a source of joy, a container of happiness and contentment, becomes a container of pain and sorrow. I can't possibly speak to all of it, but I do know why Jesus takes it seriously. And so they, their rebuttal, well, well, then why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce? Now you'll notice this is the second controversy. They're trying to trap Jesus. That's not how Jesus... Uh, or that's not how Moses speaks of it in the book of Deuteronomy. Instead, Jesus corrects them. No, he says, it's because of your hardness of heart. Do you hear that? Divorce wasn't the original design or intent. It's only because of sin, the rebellion of people against God's good design. Because of sin, Moses allowed to divorce. Now, this was in a society he's speaking to here where women were not allowed to initiate divorce, at least not usually. This was almost always a man, and so this was to protect the woman, believe it or not. Uh, whether or not the grounds were justified, that's, that's worthy of debate. But it was to say that this woman is no longer in limbo and under the control of someone else, but she is then, did you hear that? Free. You're free. You're free to remarry. You're free to go on. You're not in limbo or under the kind of the, this, this, you're stuck in this brokenness. And so notice what he says here. It's because of your hardness of heart. It's because of sin. Sin is the reason this exists. And so he gives a picture of of divorce here. 
uh, one theologian puts it this way, the best way to think about divorce here and the teaching of, uh, of the Bible on divorce is like amputation. It should never, ever, ever be taken lightly. And yet there is a time and circumstance where it's necessary to survive. And so the Bible gives, like here, the, the example of a justified divorce, which is porneia, or later in the Bible, the Apostle Paul talks about abandonment. There's think of it as like categories of grotesqueness that what? That distort the story of God's gracious union across difference. And those should be taken seriously. After all, if there was a doctor in town that was just flippantly right, performing amputations, you would immediately be like, oh, this, I don't think you understand what you're doing. And so too would the people who flippantly divorce. So notice there are consequences to these kinds of things. But Jesus says the reason this is an issue, the reason this is such a grave topic is because it distorts the very character and nature of God that's on display. Now before we kind of wrap up, let me skip to the end. If you'll notice, starting in verse 13, he starts, this is the second time this is, has happened, but Jesus says, bring the children to me. Uh, um, now, it's just by means of repetition. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I will add it. If you'll notice in context, it's pretty helpful. Because at this point, if you find yourself going, wow, Jesus is a jerk, right? If you find yourself thinking like, well, Jesus, Jesus, what an awful person. Where does the story end? With Jesus welcoming, caring for, and comforting the people that most people would overlook. Sin distorts the story of union across difference. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of it. That is not ultimately what happens. When I'm preaching in a, uh, uh, at a wedding, I, I've kind of committed to only tell one story, and it's to walk through uh, the story of this distortion even in the Bible. Because after all, if, if the picture is of God bringing union across difference and sin distorts it, well, you can follow that along the narrative of Scripture. Because ultimately, that marriage, the union of night and day, the union of land and sea, or the union of, of heaven, and, heaven and earth, and even the union of a husband and a wife are pointing to the character of God uniting to his people. Isaiah 54 says it this way, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of, God, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Jeremiah 31 says it this way, that a new covenant is going to be crafted and it will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers, says the Lord, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The prophet Hosea is sent as a faithful prophet to model faithfulness to an unfaithful bride. Chapter 2, verse 16, he says, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will then call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal or my idol, a replacement for God. And he says, and then in that day, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And so the story goes on in the place where the union of God across difference was meant to be visible, namely God and his people, is destroyed and fractured by sin. It distorts the story of God being united with perfectly and completely His people forever. And just when you think it can't get any worse, just when you think this God is going to give up on His people, man, they're the worst. Like, that's, that's the story of the Bible. They do this, and you're like, surely God will 
get rid of them now. Nope. Another, one chance after another. And when you think it can't get any worse, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 that the ultimate purpose of marriage is to point to Jesus coming to take our place for our sin. And guess how he describes it? Husband and a wife. A husband and a wife. Think of it this way. If the questions I want to answer are, why are these hot topics? And we're meant to, I hope, think why, like Jesus, these things are, are even what they are. And if, just, if divorce is so awful, then what now? Well, the mystery, Paul says, is not actually the husband and the wife, although that is a mystery. The mystery is Christ and the church, God and his people. You see, Jesus is the true unity across difference. Jesus is the true unity across difference. Jesus is able to restore that which is broken. Jesus is able to take what is fractured and what is distorted and make it new. You can trust Jesus with these things. You can trust Jesus with them completely. And so why is Jesus talking about these topics of gender, sexuality, divorce, singleness, and marriage? Because in them is a picture a pointer to the very nature of God and his people. Think of it this way. A moment ago, we got to celebrate baptism. And if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a believer in Jesus. I'm really glad you're here. Uh, but that probably seemed really silly. <laughs> it's silly. You'd be like, what is this? What a silly splash, right? But for those in the room with the eyes of faith, for those of us in the room who know what Jesus has done for us and on our behalf, it's something different, isn't it? Same when we, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It would be just a silly, unsatisfying snack. You would never go to a convenience store and be like, I want, this, I want a pretty tasteless wafer and just a little bitty, like, a, I don't know, like a quarter of an ounce of grape juice. No one would do that. It's a silly, unsatisfying snack. And yet, for those with the eyes of faith, it's more, isn't it? It's Jesus. His very body broken and his very blood poured out. You get it? Marriage is the same thing. It's imperfect, certainly, because they're imperfect people, a part of it, but it's a picture, a picture of something that God does for us in Christ. One of the things I've noticed uh, as I, I get a chance to prepare couples for marriage, without exception, opposites attract. Uh, and some of you married in the room will see this, but like, there's like, couples who get together are like almost always polar opposites in personality, right? Some, they're just, oh my goodness. It's, I mean, it's hilarious because I'm not the one marrying. I can sit on this side of the table and go like, Haha, but it's good luck with that. And, and, and these opposites attract. It's something amazing. And so, and so I'll even say at their wedding that like, this is bizarre because you might think if you got to know these people, this is an odd couple, right? He's loud, she's quiet, right? She's loud, he's quiet. We're like, Right, you say like you get the idea. Like he's he, you know, he flies off the handle, and she's very reserved. You get the, you, you've seen this, right? And you would think that's wild, until you saw through the eyes of faith that to which is, is it is pointing. You think married couples, different as they are, are odd couples, friend. There is no more odd couple than the righteous and holy God of the universe and sinful, rebellious 
human beings. And yet in Christ, Christ even himself, perfectly God and perfectly human, did you hear the words? The two become one flesh. In Christ, the holy and righteous, omnipotent, omniscient God of the universe and sinful, rebellious, wayward people, in Christ the two become one flesh. And did you hear the promise that's given? What God has joined together, no one can separate. Friends, see, Jesus restores the unity across the greatest difference, a righteous and holy God and a sinful, rebellious human being. This was only ever meant to be a pointer. So let me encourage you with a few things. How we see this, how we understand it. One, at the very least, I hope this gives you a higher view of marriage. A higher view of marriage. Look how he describes it. He says, ultimately, this is a calling. The example he uses is kind of strange. You might be like, I didn't know Jesus said stuff like this. Well, think of it. It's a pretty grotesque culture where imagine a king who was very insecure, didn't want one of his servants to run off with his wife and, or mess up his lineage of, right, of, of, perfect, right, of, of, of perfect name and blood down a, a royal line. And so he would have uh, uh, some of his servants castrated to serve with his daughters or, or, or with his wife, right? And so he mentioned that some people are made eunuchs there, but then he speaks like, but there's like a spiritual dynamic to this. There's some that have chosen not to be married for what? The kingdom of heaven. And he describes it in two different ways. One, it says, this is not something everyone can receive, but only those to whom is given. Two, let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. And here's what I want to contend for you with such a high view of these things. Gender, sexuality, marriage, singleness, these are callings and gifts. You will die in all of these things unless you receive a gift, unless you receive it as a calling. Married people, you're never going to make it. You're never going to make it through this life married unless you begin to see it as a calling. And you begin to ask yourself, why, why are these things here? Why, why, do I, why does this relationship exist? And you begin to realize, oh, this points to something bigger. Single person, you're never going to make it through this life. You're never going to make it through unless you receive it as a gift, unless you realize there's something that God is calling you to. Divorced friends, you're never going to make it through this life. Never. Until you know Jesus. Until you know the one who can repair and restore anything. And so you might say, what? Well, what do you think about gender, sexuality, marriage, divorce and singleness. And I would say, I, I, I don't think what's the good question. I want Jesus' question to reverberate with you. Why? Why? Why are you what you are? Why are things the way that they are? And Jesus will do something profound. He'll meet you with the answer. He'll meet you with himself. And so friend, if you're in the room and, and I've, I've intentionally tried to show you these topics are not just like political topics with talking points. This is Jesus pointing us to something deeper and bigger. And so maybe at any given point you hear Jesus and you're like, I don't know if I can stand by that. I'm right with you. Go to him with that. Go straight to him. I don't know if I agree with him about this whole thing on gender. I don't know if it's that simple. And so I'm going to first to tell you, I, I have no desire at all to somehow proliferate silly, superficial, right, gender stereotypes. They're silly. And I, they, I'd have to say that because after all, whatever they are, they simply point to something bigger and greater. And so, friend, why is that? Why is that? 
I don't want to argue about what a man is or what a woman is. I want you to talk about why it is. Why? Let's make that a question, right? We, we're like, how are you? And then just might my, my meet someone today and go like, why are you? Like, and Jesus. Anyway, you get the idea? And if you don't want to talk about that, friend, I think you're going to get messed up on the rest of it. You can trust Jesus with these things. He's the one who designed you. He's the one who made you. And he's the one who can redeem you. There's two ways I know this. Now, remember, I read through different parts of these prophets about marriage at weddings. This one I don't read at a wedding. This one's just for you. This is the same prophet, Jeremiah, and I'll give you two things in closing. How we can be the people who are not freaking out about this. One is that God is the ultimate divorcee. Jeremiah 3, he says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, the faithless one, Israel? How she went up to the every high hill and every, every green tea, and there she played the whore. And I thought, after this she'll return to me. But instead, her sister Judah saw it and saw all of the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel. And so I sent her away, verse 8 says, with a decree of divorce. Did you know God is divorced? Did you know there is one who has been betrayed, cheated on, and run away from more than anyone else? And it's God. Now this helps us. This means that for us, practically, we can't treat divorce as an unforgivable sin. Right? We can't treat divorce as though it's somehow like higher on a level. Why? Because if you find yourself opposing people who have been divorced or shutting them out, you'll find yourself opposing and shutting out God himself. God is divorced. There is no one who has been the victim of unfaithfulness like God has. No righteous, pure entity has had to deal with more betrayal and disappointment than God. That's how awful it is. But here's the second thing. I'll tell you a story about several years ago, my wife and I lived in an older house and the, the infrastructure that brought water and sewage or whatever to the house uh, started to deteriorate. It's very old. And the, the plumber from the city who came to look at it kind of surveyed the damage. And, and we saw it was starting to destroy the, the foundation. It was starting to destroy the concrete around the, around the house. Uh, it, it started to destroy the basement. It started to destroy like the yard, the fence, the ditch. Every, it, was all, it was just all kind of falling apart um, because of the seepage that was happening. And he's walking around seeing all this. He's like, mm, 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 mm. And, and, and he just kind of concludes, he says like, this is about as bad as I've ever seen it. This is really bad. But it's nothing I can't fix. That's an easy fix for me. I found that, that to be one of the most profound things I've heard, and I want you to hear the same. As Jesus looks at the brokenness that exists, the sin that separates us from the Father, the sin that leaves scars, the sin across conversations of gender, sexuality, marriage, singleness, and divorce. And Jesus looks at it and says, this is about as bad as it gets. This is bad. This is awful. You wouldn't wish divorce on your worst enemy, and yet he also crosses his arms and goes like, but it's nothing I can't fix. That's an easy fix for me. So see, Jesus is able to restore unity across the greatest difference. Unity across the greatest difference. That is, 
a perfect and righteous and holy God and sinful, cheating, wandering, rebellious people. And he makes the two in himself one flesh, restores them completely, puts back together what sin has broken. Friend, let that begin to change the way you see the Father. Let that shape the way you talk about gender, sexuality, singleness, marriage, and divorce. Let that change the way you see everything. Let it change the way you see sunrises, sunsets, mountains, and oceans. Let them all be a reminder of the powerful, redemptive work of Christ to draw us back, to redeem us, to restore us to a loving God. Let's pray together and thank God that he can do this in Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much that you take a controversial topic like this and use it as an example to call us back to see the purpose and design of God. Thank you that you restore and make right and redeem all that is broken by sin. And so, Lord, thank you for those in the room. Maybe, maybe this morning they wouldn't call themselves Christians. Might even today they begin to see the mysterious and beautiful things around us, even things that sometimes are distorted like marriage. Might they look around and see the beauty in them and have a, a creative enthusiasm and curiosity that there might be a God who delights in restoring, bringing union to different things. Maybe for the rest of us, we've, we'll err on one side or the other. <laughs> we, we feel the weight of this is really awful and we need to hear you say this is nothing that you can't and won't fix. Maybe for some of us that man, we're just eager for you to fix it, but we don't really admit the ways that it's devastated us. God, let us hear the powerful words of Jesus who gives us authoritative instruction, but then goes to the cross to take the place of sinners who is resurrected to bring us back to our first love. Thank you, Jesus, that you do this for us. Bring healing and hope to each of these hot topics. Bring clarity, bring understanding. Be glorified as we think about who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.